What to wear? What to wear? That's a question that comes up a lot this time of year. Right? It may be a debate between a husband and a wife about whether or not he should wear that crazy Christmas sweater to the party or not. It could be that discussion, are we going to be taking family pictures at this event? Because if so, kids, you can't wear that hoodie. you got to dress up a little. What to wear? I think about the protocol of, of dress codes. We're a pretty casual church on Sundays, but whenever I do a wedding or a funeral, I put on a suit out of respect for, for the event there, right? I, I tell people, if you see me in a suit, somebody either getting married or buried. There's kind of this unspoken dress code. And even though it's sometimes forgotten in places like Walmart and the U.S. Senate, most of us, most of us are, are aware of it. want to take you on a journey, a journey from swaddling cloths in a manger to the finest garments at a wedding feast. And as we go along through a parable, Jesus is going to tell the leaders in his time, I want us to keep two questions in mind. One, how have you responded to the king's invitation to the royal wedding feast? And two, are you dressed properly. Are you dressed properly for the feast? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 22, verse 1. This is the third parable in a trilogy to the leaders. It says, again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. It's not real difficult to identify the characters here, right? The king, God the father, the son, Jesus Christ. A king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. Now, in this time, I don't know.
you think of God's kingdom, do you think of joy? Ultimate joy. Now we're going to see some invitees who were distracted. Distracted by other things in their lives. I think about distracted and I, I thought about a story I read on Fox News this week that I almost had to shake my head and say, is this true? There was a guy in Vietnam that went to the doctor because he had a headache and uh, it wasn't going away and he said I've had it for months could you take a look at what's going on and they did a scan they found two chopsticks that had been shoved up his nose into his brain and when the doctor told him what was in there the guy said oh yeah I remember a night about five months ago, I was pretty drunk and I got in a fight and someone stabbed me in the face with something, but I didn't know what it was. And I'm thinking, how drunk do you have to be to not know you have wooden sticks up your nose and in your brain for five months? This guy must live in a state of perpetual drunken distractedness, right? Pretty extreme. But I think about this question. How many of us, how many of us live in a state of distractedness perpetually that keeps us from focusing on the things of eternity? John Calvin said this disease is universally prevalent so that hardly one person in a hundred can be found who prefers the kingdom of God to fading riches. That's what happened to many of the Jewish leaders who, who had the son right in front of them giving the, the invite. Jesus tells us at the end of verse 3, they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, prophets, teachers, saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. What, what a spread, and it's been said that Jesus well knew the extravagant cost of this kingdom. It wasn't calves and oxen, it was his own life. Think of all that God had done for the people of Israel throughout the centuries up to his son coming. He says, it's already come to the wedding feast. Verse 5, but they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business. Another parable in Luke 14, which is similar says they all alike began to make excuses. One, one said, I bought five yoke of oxen and must examine them. Got to go check out the vehicles, right? I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. I've bought a field and must go examine it. Now let me ask you a question. Are any of those wicked, evil, or even bad things? No. None of them are bad things. They're, they're good things, right? What's going on and what can happen to us if we're not careful? 
We can fall into the trap of, of what one man said, being so busy making a living that we forget to make a life. Being so wrapped up in the things that are passing that, that we forget to focus on that which lasts. They were too distracted. But there's a second group here. There were invitees who were hostile to the king. Look at verse 6. It says, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. This happened to many prophets along the way. It happened to Jesus. It happened to Stephen after the cross. It happened to James and, and many of the apostles. Are there still people living today that are hostile to the king? Oh, you bet. You bet. There, there may be some here this morning. I don't know. Think about something author Tim Marshall wrote. He said he sat with a young lady at Starbucks, and, and she said she, she was afraid to hang out with her family anymore because she was a believer, and they, they were atheists. And here's what she said. She said, they're always lambasting me about my faith, telling me how dumb I am to believe in God. Maybe some of you know what that's like during the holidays as you gather with friends and family. I think about something that Professor Yancey, uh, a professor at Baylor University, shared. He, he wrote a book in 2015 called Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. And in that book, he told a story where he told a college class about the fact that Christians are being martyred for their faith even to this day. What shocked him, what amazed him, was that some of the students in that classroom approved of those murders. That, that amazed him. Michael Brown in 2022 took a... a survey of people he described as progressive activists and there was one statement in particular it came from a male aged 36 to 45 that that shook him this particular male said the only good christian is a dead christian hostility towards the king still exists in our world and i want to share something with you this morning if, if you're here and that even touches closely on who you are. God loves you. He loves even those who are hostile to Christ. He died for you. You think about Christmas time, you come back to the preeminent verse of why God sent his son down here. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You might be hostile to God this morning, but he still loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. The flip side, which we don't often quote out of John 3, is if you remain in that state of hostility and unbelief to God, to Jesus Christ, his son, there are eternal consequences. John 3.18 goes on to say, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, 
But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. But as different as these two groups are, one's just distracted, one's hostile, they share one thing in common. Neither of them went to the king's feast. Neither of them went to the celebration. They missed out because they were distracted, because they were hostile. And the king responded in the story. Verse 7, the king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Jesus wept over Jerusalem during these final days because he knew what was coming as they rejected the king. As John 1.11 puts it, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. It talks about sending his troops, destroying the murderers, and burning their city. He's talking about A.D. 70, when the Roman general Titus came, destroyed the city. Perhaps a million Jews died in that massacre, and the city, the temple, was burned. If you want to read some of the details of it, look up Josephus, the Jewish historian. Josephus, A.D. 70, destruction of Jerusalem. If that does not move your heart, nothing will. There were consequences for rejecting the king and his son. But then something interesting happens. The king goes on to invite others. He would have his feast. He would have his celebration for his son. That wasn't a question. The only question was who's going to be there. Verse 8, he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Go out there to the, the forks in the road and see who's standing out there and just tell them, hey, there's a feast in here. Get in here. Come celebrate with the king. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. Both bad and good. There is so much hope in that little phrase. Because maybe you're sitting here this morning saying, I can never be one at the, the wedding feast. I'm bad. I'm too bad. Both bad and good. So much hope in those words. In the parable in Luke 14, which is similar, it says, The master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. If that's you spiritually this morning, then I got... <laughs> I can't do it on my own. I can't even see spiritually. I can't walk spiritually. I'm crippled. This is great news. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. Do you see how eager the king is to share the good news of this feast and to have those who would come? and celebrate with him and enjoy it. Our God is a missionary God. He wants people at his feast. 
And you say, who are these others? Well, Jews who believe, many of those first disciples are part of it. But now, as you go through the book of Acts especially, you're going to see a transition as it goes not only to the Jews, but then to the Samaritans and then to the Gentiles like you and I around the rest of the empire. And this is a wonderful promise. Think about how Paul puts it in Ephesians 2. He's talking to Gentiles in the city of Ephesus. So remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time in the past separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What a dark place to be. He's saying that's how you were in the past, but now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one. Who's the boat there? Jews who believe, Gentiles who believe. Now check out verse 10. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. The king and his son would have their celebration, and the room will be full. But now I want to move on to a man with no wedding garment. I promised we'd go from swaddling cloths to the finest wedding garments. Here we go. Verse 11. When the king came in to look at the guests, you see him out there eating, enjoying the feast, and then all of a sudden the king comes into the hall. He saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you read that description of where he's cast out to, what, what do you know about that description elsewhere in Scripture? What's he talking about? I believe he's talking about eternal death and separation in hell, in the lake of fire. You say, all this for a wedding garment? Why? Why? I believe he tried to sneak into this feast with his own garments. He thought, this is good enough. This is good enough. But listen, there's a truth here I believe Jesus is getting at. You cannot enter the kingdom of God on your own merits. It does not matter if you're better than your neighbor or better than that person on Facebook. Isaiah 64, 6 says, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Verse 14, he says, For many are called, but few are chosen. The invitation goes out to many, but only few respond. Do you notice where he said, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He used that word another time in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember that? 
as Judas came to betray him and to kiss him, to identify him, he said, friend, do what you have come for. Some believe he was referring to Judas and others like him. Think about Judas, the tragedy of Judas, three years in the living, breathing of the king. So close and yet so far because he would not trust him. The warning here is there, there can be people sitting in church services like this this morning all across our nation in the same boat. They hear this week after week after week, but they've yet to come to the place where they embrace the king's son as their savior and their Lord. You see, all are invited into the kingdom, but they must be properly dressed from swaddling cloths to wedding garments. You say, well, if that's the case, what are the wedding garments that we need for the feast? We need righteousness. The righteousness of Christ is what we need. You say, where would this man have gotten this wedding garment that the king required? Well, I believe along with many others that the king in the story, though Jesus doesn't say, likely would have provided those garments for his guests. After all, they were dragged in off the street corners, right? They were in no shape for a wedding. But beyond that point of logic, I largely believe this because all throughout Scripture, we see God providing the garments his children need. You could go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You remember the fall of man. They disobeyed one command, and God came, where are you? And they tried to cover it up. Genesis 3, 7, the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You can only imagine how ineffective leaves are at doing the job. What happens in Genesis 3:21? The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Where do garments of skin come from? Animals. He, he made a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice that they might be clothed. You think about Ezekiel as, as God compares Israel to a baby, then a young woman that he found. In desperate straits, Ezekiel 16, 8, he says, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. And you became mine. You see the tender care and the provision here? It goes on. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. It goes on. You could read the whole chapter. You, you see his provision of garments for Israel. What about Zechariah 3? There was a man named Joshua who was high priest in Israel. 
during the time of the rebuilding, not to be confused with the Joshua and the walls of Jericho. Different Joshua. And the prophet Zechariah has this vision. Zechariah 3.1. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Some of you are there this morning. The enemy's just filling your ear with all your sin, all your guilt, with condemnation this morning. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. And he points at Joshua and says, Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. That's us apart from the grace of God. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove those filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. God provided the garment. You go on, Isaiah 61.10. As Isaiah speaks for Jerusalem, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. There is a day coming when many in Israel will turn and be clothed with that righteousness of Christ. So back to our original question, why did the king of kings, why did he come down here and wear swaddling cloths in a food trough. Even deeper, why did he take on our flesh? Why did he become man that he might pay the debt you owe, the debt that I owe? That that baby would, would go from a manger to a cross. And I recently heard some song lyrics by Cutlass that reminded me of something beautiful. You walk into a Christmas decorated house and the lights are on the tree often that's the first thing you walk over and see right that's so beautiful and in their song they brought it out so beautifully that that the light of the world jesus christ himself was was hung on a tree for you for me and i think about what john said in 1232 he said jesus said when i am lifted up from the earth I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He offers us forgiveness and his garments of righteousness if we will believe and receive. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Martin Luther called this the great exchange. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, as Christ, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. More to the point, Galatians 3.27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
You say, how? How do I receive those, those garments of righteousness, Christ's righteousness? You can't earn it. If you can earn it, it's not grace. It's only by faith. Romans 3.21, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Have you received that righteousness? That's why you came. That's the real reason to celebrate this time of year. But how many of you know that even as believers, questions come to our minds, doubts? Am I really covered with the righteousness of Christ? Have you been there? The fiery darts of the evil one. I want to tell you about a missionary, Rosalind Goforth. You may have heard of her. Very busy, very eager missionary to China. Christian had placed her trust in Christ, worked hard for him. But even on the mission field in China, she repeatedly came back to these doubts. Am I truly one of his children? Am I truly covered in the righteousness of Christ? She decided to settle it one night. She pulled out her Bible and she said, I'm going to look through here and find all the references I can about the forgiveness that I have in Christ. And I want you to close your eyes for just a moment. If you're a believer, this is true of you. If you're not a believer, this could be true of you in Christ. She went through and listed these things. He, he laid my sins on his son. Christ takes them away. They're removed an immeasurable distance as far as east is from the west. When sought for, they are not found. The Lord forgives them. He cleanses them all away by the blood of his son. He cleanses them as white as snow or wool. He doesn't just pardon them. He abundantly pardons them. He tramples them underfoot. He remembers them no more. He casts them behind his back. He casts my sin into the depths of the sea. He will not impute us with sins. He covers them. He blots them out. He blots them out as a thick cloud. He blots out even the proof against us, nailing it to his son's cross. You came in here looking for good news this morning. That is good news. Corey Tinboom got more to the point on it. I like the way she said it. She said, God buries our sins in the depths of the sea and then puts up a sign that says, no fishing allowed. Some of us have been fishing, reliving, rehashing. No fishing allowed. So I come back to my original questions. How have you responded to the king's invitation? Distraction? Hostility? Or receiving it by faith? Trusting in Christ's sacrifice and resurrection for your eternal life. Second, are you dressed properly for the feast? Are you dressed in the righteousness of Christ this morning? See, I shared John 1.11 earlier. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. That's tragic, but verse 12 is beautiful. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Final word. 
for those who receive the invitation, I want to encourage you this morning that a feast is coming. A feast is coming. Revelation 19.7, looking to that future date, says the marriage of the Lamb has come. And, and in this one, we're not just guests. We're, we're the bride believers. Marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her, given to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You say, righteous deeds? Yeah, that's not a problem, because where do truly righteous deeds come from? The Christ who gave you his righteousness as your status. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. I know this side of heaven, life is a constant spiritual battle. Some of you are in the throes of it this morning. I don't know about your life. Going through 2020, I thought that was probably going to be the craziest year I ever saw. But this year of 2023... We have faced more spiritual warfare than ever in my life. How many of you are there? It can be tiring. It can be wearying. It is a spiritual battle this side of heaven. But I want to tell you this morning, hold on. Keep on holding on because the feast is coming. This, this place of joy and rest and face-to-face -face fellowship with your king is coming. As we close this morning, I want you to think about that coming feast, the, the reality that our king is coming back. And I want you to listen to a song that, that met me at, at my point of need this week. It's by Andrew Peterson. It's a song called In the Night. We'll have the lyrics on the screen. the forces of the enemies of God, the enemies of God. He saw the hills aflame with angels on their horses, so in the night my hope lives on. Oh, in the night, oh, in the night, oh, in the night my hope lives on. See the slave that toils beneath the yoke unyielding. I can hear the captive groan, hear the captive groan For some hand to stay the whip his foe is wielding Still in the night my hope lives on I see the armies of the enemy approaching And the people driven trembling into the shore But a doorway through the waters now is opening So in the night
son of Mary, he was gentle as a lamb, gentle as a lamb, he was beaten, he was crucified and buried, and in the night my hope was gone, but the rulers of this earth could not control him, no they did not take his life, he laid it down, and all the chains of death could never hope to hold him. Father, I uh, think in particular this morning for any who came in discouraged in the battle, any believers feeling the weight of that, I pray with the psalmist that you would restore unto us the joy of your salvation, yeah, future hope, keep us moving forward. When the enemy whispers condemnation and defeat in our ears, may we plead the righteous blood of Christ. His righteousness is our garment. And if any came in in those other two categories this morning, distracted or hostile, I pray your Holy Spirit would draw them to the foot of the cross, to faith in the Savior King who died for them and rose again. As we prepare to give our offerings, may they come from hearts filled with gratitude for a king who would, would leave his throne, for a manger, for a cross, for a tomb, and rise again and ascend to the right hand of the Father, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus 
born in Bethlehem, but whose origins are from of old. In his mighty name we pray. Amen.